Hello and welcome to Progressive News Network. It's PNN. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. It is Sunday, March 28th, 2021. And uh, wow, we got a show for you. Uh, it's myself. It's Rick Spizak. It's Janine Maloff. It's the original three of the crowd. And uh, I'm so glad that this week we've got uh, Rick back doing, uh, having a chat with Dennis Campbell. Dennis Campbell, I understand, is just taking a big uh, job doing some sort of something or another, having to do with Dubai and all kinds of big adulting kind of things. So look out for what they're getting ready to talk about. Janine Maloff has had a look at what the devil is going on down in Georgia this last week or so having to do with the, that um, <clears throat> situation with voting rights and uh, Jim Crow 2.0 and uh, look out for that. So she will be uh, uh, about a quarter after the hour. Well, 8.15-ish, we'll, we'll throw that on. Her piece is a little bit long this time because there is a lot to talk about because the stuff going on in Georgia is super ugly right now. Now, I've got, uh, I thought I would have, present, give you uh, some thoughts on these uh, dueling Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez articles uh, because I think that this is not not just because it's a social media controversy or it's something that that people got up in arms about, but because I think that there is something central here that is very important to to what we're doing, to our project, to the discourse. Um, And it it fits in, in a weird way, with uh, the piece that I published on Substack last week and the whole long uh, uh, to-do about that clicks right in. So I want I want to uh to uh hopefully play this for you. Let's see. I guess I'm gonna play it from there. Let's see if I can play it from here. Yes, boys and girls, this is what happens when you prepare for the show um just a little bit later than maybe you ought to have. I apologize. All right, so now we're all connected, and here's the first part of my piece, and I'm going to come back in a few minutes after this is done, and we are going to continue this conversation, all right? Um, For now, let me just cue this up, and we'll start the first part of this piece and I'll be back to uh to take it on home. Okay, real quick. I want to address this uh Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez controversy that erupted this weekend uh with this kind of dueling pair of articles that uh, the first one was from the uh, Democratic Socialists of America uh, publication called Democratic Left, where AOC had done an interview back in January, at the very end of January, on the 26th, with uh, the Democratic Left editorial board member Don McIntosh. 
Okay. Now, this it's significant that the interview was conducted in this way because as a premier or the premier member of DSA, having this interview in the DSC official DSA publication, this is this is a little bit more like PR than it is reporting or or analysis or anything like that. Uh which is totally legit. Like PR is how we learn a lot about the world. You know, Uh, you're not going to buy a new car without checking out the brochure for that car, essentially. Uh, If it's, you know, something new that you're going to drive off the lot, you want to see what that company actually, what they say about that actual car. And that's kind of the way these sorts of, interviews go. They're meant to put the organization in its best light, and they're meant to put the interviewee in her best light. And sometimes there might even be another, let's say, unspoken agenda. You know, like there there might be something else that they're trying to address, some other uh, uh, issue or uh, or vibe that they want to put out. It just depends. You know, PR, I've done PR many years in my career and I'm pretty familiar with it. And I've also run a uh, newspaper where I was familiar with being on that side of receiving PR. And I know what it feels like on both sides. And I recognize the uh, value of a very good PR. Now, the second article came from the world socialist website, which uh, is, Let me get you the information on this, which is published by the Fourth International Committee and is affiliated uh, sections and its affiliated sections in the Socialist Equality Parties. And so, you know, this is a um, a very hardcore, serious Trotskyite publication. Now, I know that it's very, very much on point right now to be able to pinpoint exactly where you stand on some sort of graph that puts out all of the flavors of um, socialism and democratic socialism and, and, you know, whether you're a Trotskyite or straight Marxist or Marxist Leninist or this and the other, I, I think that that's where this discussion gets bogged down. So I think it's, it's a, it makes sense to kind of set that aside for a second if we're going to look at this to make any sense of this that's in front of us. Um, and the way I kind of see this this piece that is the and the analysis piece that comes from wsws.org, uh, I see this more written from the perspective of someone who is older who is intending to write analysis rather than PR and who is bringing, like the first one, is also perhaps bringing a third agenda to bear. So I want to talk about those hidden agendas that are in extent in both of these pieces. Uh, I think it's critical to understanding what exactly is going on. And I always like to kind of understand what's going on before I get into a fight with anybody or even a discussion or even, you know, just a, you know, mulling things over. I think it's important to let's just first understand these things before we go off. Okay, so let's start. So let's take a look at some of the ways that uh, 
questions are brought up to AOC in the first piece. And so I'm just going to read straight front. This is the very first question. And it says, Bronx Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, best known as AOC, is DSA's foremost socialist superstar. Her June 2018 primary win, a 29-year-old taqueria bartender defeating the third most powerful Democrat in the U.S. House of Representatives, inspired up to 10,000 people to join DSA. The Netflix documentary, Knock Down the House, details her life story leading up to that victory. Since then, her influence has only grown. Earnest, fun, relatable, and fierce. She became one of Congress's best-known members overnight and then used the attention to pull the national conversation leftward. In 2018, in October, her endorsement revived Bernie Sanders' campaign following his heart attack. Today, with over 12 million Twitter followers, her picture on the cover of the December issue of Vanity Fair and her mass cultural appeal to teens and the not yet political, she continues to use her unasked for celebrity to build support for a democratic socialist agenda. On January 28th, more than a quarter of a million people streamed her impromptu teach-in on the gamer platform Twitch.tv. Their topic was the GameStop stock market rebellion, but the discussion encompassed a critique of Wall Street and a plug for the wealth tax. AOC spoke with me by Zoom on January 26th. There starts the interview, and the very first question is, what was your path for joining DSA? And I'm not going to cover what she says there, but I want to give you a, a flavor of these questions. The second question was, uh, the writer says, Macintosh says, great story. Thank you for sharing that. Then he says, DSA's priorities really are your priorities as well. The Green New Deal and Medicare for All in particular. There's no getting around the fact that each of these are going to require an act of Congress. What is the most strategic thing that DSA members and chapters could be doing right now to bring that about? And now that's an interesting question, because if you think about the setup there, and, and you think about what's what's being asked is uh, they're looking for uh, how DSA is now engaging in congressional uh, political process, and so I think that her answer here is is actually important. And she says, "I'm a big believer in exercising a dual approach." First of all, I think you're right. There is no Medicare for all without an act of Congress. The thing is legislation after all. And she says, I think sometimes people fall into this trap of wishful thinking about a poll question, thinking that support is solid and that it is unsusceptible to the propaganda of corporate lobbyists and the health insurance industry. I think the first thing we need is real honesty about the work to be done ahead of us. There are some issues that poll really well, and the polling is concrete. There are other issues that poll one way or another, and the polling can really fluctuate with just one ad campaign. Okay, so that gives you a flavor of this conversation that they're having. And it's really, when you look at this conversation, it's really about kind of the inside baseball of how DSA brought somebody up and who they were 
you know, like their life story, like, like, like if they were interviewing a musician, you know, they started all the way back with, did you uh, pluck the guitar on the porch with your papa? You know, did you learn to play a, a juice harp? You know, like, like, like that. Um, this is going all the way back to childhood kind of, kind of interview. It's that sort of thing. But then it changes gears really quick into the machinery of Congress and how DSA can have some sort of a pull within Congress and, and how that's supposed to happen. Now, the next question is uh, McIntosh asks, we've heard again and again from conservative Democrats that an AOC-style agenda might fly in Queens or the Bronx, but it can't win in more competitive districts out in middle America. What's your answer to that? And she says, I think that their critique may be more aesthetic, to be honest. After all, I was born in the Bronx, and I'm bred in this community, and this is my community. So, of course, you know, I just walk over to another state in Nebraska or whomever, and they're going to suss out real quick that perhaps I'm not a Nebraskan. Okay, this, just deconstructing this, what they're wanting to know is, hey, is DSA going to play out in, uh, you know, in the flyover states or whatever? She gets to the meat of this toward the end of the question, and she says, uh, when we come together, we're able to build trust and expand a collective power among all the folks that resonate with each of us individually. The idea is like, she's not going to win in this one community or that one community. I'm not trying to, you know, what we're trying to build is a movement in that community. And that is a very different question than trying to litigate one personality versus another. Okay, so they're placing DSA within the context of a movement. Great, moving on. Next question. Some on the left have looked at Biden's record and his differences with Bernie's wing of the party, and they conclude no progress is going to come out of the Biden administration. What's your view? Now, that is a very interesting kind of middle question, because you get assumed that by here, we're getting to what Macintosh really wants to talk about. This is what he's really interested in. And so this was June 28th, just a few days after inauguration, when they were having this conversation. And uh, they didn't have anything to look at. You know, he had, he'd barely, you know, taken the oath of office and moved in at this point. But she says, <clears throat> I think it is a really privileged critique to have a critique of, of Biden's past history. We're going to have to focus on solidarity with one another, which that sentence to me doesn't follow the first sentence. Like uh, if you're saying that, that uh, people have a very privileged critique and then you say we have to focus on solidarity, uh, the first thing you said kind of precludes the second thing, if you get what I'm saying here. But she says, we're going to focus on that solidarity, developing our senses of good faith, of good faith critique and bad faith critique. And this is something we've heard a lot of lately, good faith critique versus bad faith critique. Uh, and it's something that is going to become part of my uh, part two of the series that I'm working on, because I think that this is a theme that a lot of people are working around. She continues by saying, bad faith critique can destroy everything that we have built so swiftly. 
And we know this because it has in the past, and it's taken us so many decades to get to this point. We do not have the time or the luxury to entertain bad faith actors in our movement, which makes me wonder what she's proposing there. Um, but she continues, uh, also, we have to value our solidarity with one another. Again, two sentences that bump right up against each other, negating each other. For anyone who brings that up, we really have to ask ourselves, what is the message that you are sending to your black and brown and undocumented members of your community, to your friends when you say nothing has changed? Now, remember, this was January 28th. Perhaps not enough has changed. And this is not a semantic argument. Just the other night, we, in a collective struggle, were able to stop the deportations of critical members of our community. And that would not have happened in a Trump administration. And interestingly, the viewer then just says, thank you. Doesn't pose another question. He just says, thank you. So she continues. They were just on the belt, ready to go, and you just cannot say that nothing will change. We can make the argument that not enough is changing fast enough, eight days into the inauguration. And these are really not nitpicking questions of semantics, because this is how the language we use communicates to individuals of who is included and who do you consider a person. When you say, quote, nothing has changed, you are calling the people who are now protected from deportation, quote, no one. And we cannot allow that in our movement. That's not a movement I want to be part of. And I know that's not the movement that we are part of. We're so susceptible to cynicism. And that cynicism, that weaponization of cynicism, is what has and what continues to threaten to tear down everything that we have spent so much time building up. We're allowed to win, too, by the way, she says, laughing. Now, that's, that's pretty much, that's once you've got the weaponization of cynicism, the bad faith actors, uh, you know, can't entertain bad faith actors in our movement, but then we're going to have solidarity and this and her own weaponization of identity politics. Once you've got all of that in there, you've got the gist of what's going on in this interview. It's very interesting. Um, it goes on and really it just kind of dances in that same basic way. I'm looking to see if there's anything in here about foreign policy, but there's nothing really. Um, but I think foreign policy is very important to the second part. So when we look at this second piece, and uh, this was written by, by the author Eric London, who has a book out about um, – let me get you this information because I think it's important. He just published a book called Agents, the FBI and the GPU Infiltration of the Trotskyist Movement. So this is somebody who is uh, aware of the history of these movements and the way that different pressures have been brought to bear on movements um, such as, you know, Dem Socias and, uh, you know, 
socialists in general, Marxists, Leninists, blah, 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 the whole spectrum. Uh, so I think that that's important because from there, you know that this is somebody who, who has a frame. They have an analysis that they're going to bring to this. So I was interested to see his analysis. I was also interested just because this was a controversy. Like, why, why is this such a controversy? Well, let's figure it out. So we got the PR on the one side, and we got, you know, started to deconstruct what the questions were about, and we started to deconstruct some of the answers where you get the bad faith actors, and you want solidarity, but you don't want those bad faith actors, and you don't want the weaponization of cynicism, but then you're going to weaponize identity with, uh, you know, people having to do with uh, the immigration debate. Now, again, this was written, this was or this article, this interview was conducted at the end of January before all of the very unfortunate stuff has taken uh, effect with regard to Biden's immigration policy. And if you watched Biden's press conference the other day, he got one question after another about what's going on at the border. And then he promised to put Kamala Harris at the border to take care of this uh, immigration crisis that we have. And, you know, they're they're deporting people. And it's not like, you know, it's it's really unfortunate. It's not the best example that they could have um, brought to bear, at least from the standpoint of doing PR, from the standpoint of uh, Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA, doing this, uh, you know, vanity piece, this is, you know, splashy, you know, cover story of AOC picking immigration and using immigration and kind of weaponizing the, uh, the, the narrative there is really kind of unfortunate given where we're at right now. And I think I have a, I have a, a kind of an intuition about the way things are published and the reason why this sat on someone's desk for seven weeks is I think that they kept waiting for uh, Biden's immigration policy to get a little better. They didn't take seven weeks to edit the piece. In other words, this is a verbatim interview, basically. It's here's the question, here's the answer. Here's the question, here's the answer. This wasn't something that people poured over the way that a transition works or the way that uh, an analysis from the beginning to the ending flows. It's not that. This sat on someone's desk for seven weeks because it wasn't fit to print because there is too much chaos going on with our immigration policy and the whole piece is centered on immigration policy. So it's a problem. Now the journalist at WSWS pulls out a couple of the uh, responses that AOC gave and he pulls them out for analysis. And the first one is, he says, McIntosh asks, quote, some on the left has lo have looked at Biden's record and his difference with the burning wing of the party, and they conclude that no progress is going to come out of the Biden administration. What's your view? And this is what we just went over. And she says, well, I think it's a very privileged critique. We're going to have to focus on solidarity with one another. Um, 
develop our senses for good faith and bad faith critique because bad faith critique can destroy everything that we have built so swiftly. And we know this because it has a past and it has taken us so many decades to get to this point. We do not have the time or the luxury to entertain bad faith actors in our movement, but there's solidarity or something. Now, the author London is very brief in his response to this. He says, such, quote, bad faith actors, Ocasio-Cortez says, only betray their disdain for the poor and oppressed by criticizing the president. Ocasio-Cortez adds a noxious dose of identity politics to the old democratic trick of presenting left-wing opponents as aiding the right. And this is exactly what I talked about all last week. This is what my my big thing that I published on Substack was all about. This, uh, oh, the left is a bunch of fascists. Beware, danger, Will Robinson. This is a theme. This was being talked about January 28th. And like I mentioned in my piece, this was something that I believe probably went way before January 28th, you know, because we know that there was a a secret cabal to save democracy and protect the vote and all of that. And there was hundreds of progressive organizations working together behind the scenes on social media and working messaging, and they've got it all figured out. And I think this is one of the things that they figured out is that they want to talk about who's a good lefty and who's a bad lefty. Who's in, who's out? Who are you going to have solidarity with? All right? Right? Who gets the microphone? How progressive is your stack? All right. Continuing. The next quote, he says, and this pertains to presenting left-wing opponents as aiding the right. This is from what AOC responded to in the other interview. She says, for anyone who brings that up, i.e. opposition to the Biden administration, we really have to ask ourselves, what is the message that you are sending to your black and brown and undocumented members of your community, to your friends, when you say that nothing has changed? Eight days into the administration. When you say nothing has changed, when you say nothing has changed, you are calling the people who are now protected from deportation, no one. And we cannot allow that in our movement. So Lennon points out, the example of protecting immigrants from deportation is an unfortunate selection on AOC's part. In the weeks since the interview, Biden has suspended the right to asylum, and tens of thousands of Central American refugees have been deported, and they've been denied as much as just a court hearing. This is why they sat on the desk for seven weeks, by the way. Perhaps AOC considers that the 15,000 children presently detained in immigration jails are, quote, privileged bad faith actors for opposing their own incarceration. He's got a point. He's using very pointed language. I might not have used that language. And I like pointed language. But he's, he's got a point here. Ocasio-Cortez saves the most vertuperative comments for the genuine socialist opponents of Biden. When asked, what was your path to joining DSA? AOC responds by repeatedly stressing what makes DSA distinctive from other socialist groups. And it's, quote, we felt like there wasn't this class essentialism. 
but that this really was a multiracial class struggle that didn't deprioritize human rights. Frankly, I was impressed. Now, this is where it gets very interesting. At the end of the interview, she praises a number of DSA members running for office as Democrats, saying these are people that you want to be around. They are not cynical. They do not engage in more socialists than now. They are just relentlessly positive. This reference to class essentialists deprioritizing human rights shows Ocasio-Cortez and the DSA are working in line with a definite political tradition. And I recognize this. I can feel this in my bones. It is American anti-communism. And if you're old enough to have lived through the Cold War, I'm 54. I'll be 55 soon. If you lived through the Cold War, especially through the 80s, you recognize this. You can feel it coming a mile away. There is nothing socially progressive that can emerge from this morass. Now, young people, I think, might be under the impression that something can emerge from that, the same way that people in the 90s thought that neoliberalism was a trade-off that they could deal with. Now the trade-off, instead of being neoliberalism, is this imperialist kind of foreign policy, this anti-communist foreign policy that we see especially in South Florida. I mean, this is very pertinent here where we live. So this article starts to go into a lot of the mechanics of the history of all of these organizations, the DSA, the SDS, the DSOC, LID. Like, If you took a history of American social movements class in college, you probably recognize these players. If you've read some uh, recent American history or were interested in student movements of the 60s, you're familiar with these guys. I'm not going to uh, weight you down with this, except to say that uh, where the DSA kind of comes out of uh, is a part of the movement uh, under the pressure of the post-war boom, uh, there was a principled fight against the Stalinist degeneration of the Soviet Union. Um, this transformed into the anti-Marxist position that the Soviet Union was a bureaucratic collectivist regime and that the bureaucracy was the new ruling class whose human rights violations justified socialist support for American imperialism in the Cold War. And the quickest way I, need, I, I know to say this is that there was a deal made and uh, there were economic DSA kind of people and then there were anti-war and people who are interested in anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism and there was a split, okay? And things got a little bit ugly. I mean, there were people who were involved in these movements who actually supported the Bay of Pigs um, and the invasion of uh, Cuba and the Vietnam War. A lot of people who were involved in these movements way back then went through all of these struggles back then. And they're trying to tell us that some of the same mistakes are being made again. Now, what I see being laid down, and I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong about this. But what I see being laid down by AOC and some within the strata of the 
uh, in BSA writ large, is, is an orientation that is uh, serving foreign policy interests of American U.S. imperialism. Back in my day, it was pro-American, pro-Cold War, and very pro-State Department. Now, AOC was an IR, uh, international relations uh, uh, person in college at, at BU, at Boston College, at Boston University, rather. And uh, it was uh, international relations and economics. So that's, that's like State Department track right there. Uh, I am understanding from this, I am sensing an emerging narrative that I'm a little bit surprised about with regard to AOC, not surprised about with regard to DSA and these various movements. You know, people on the ground see these movements as they happen right now, what they mean to us, you know, in the moment. Are we knocking doors? Are we, you know, working together? You know, are things happening? That's what we're looking at. But from the standpoint of an organization, organizations have histories, and they have fights that they've fought, and they have reasons for the way that they become who they are. That's just the way it is. And what this guy is uh, laying down in this piece in WSWS I think is very important, and I think that people need to be aware of it. Okay, I'm going to cut it off right there. We'll be back in just a second. And we're back. Uh, so I'm going to finish this piece up, okay? Uh, where we just left off is uh, AOC's uh, uh, has this education that is oriented towards you know, the mindset that you would find in the State Department. And she's engaged in this discussion with the DSA. And then there's this other article that we're comparing it to from uh, the uh, Fourth International and WSWS. And so there's, a, there's some history here. The article, and, I, and I'll have the link in the show notes like I always do, but uh, read both of them. And particularly pay attention to in London's article where he's going over all of the um, history here because it's a lot. But I'm going to sum it up by just saying that there was a white, a rightward drift, a major rightward drift that happened during the 60s between all of the major players on the left. And they all came to this rightward position from, you know, for different reasons and from different directions, okay? But, but the big one, the, the, the biggest one was the Cold War and the, uh, this enormous fear of the Soviet Union, which we found out in 1991 was somewhat of a paper tiger, if we can switch metaphors, uh, midstream. Uh, the Soviet Union was was held up as this big bad, and any of these organizations that had socialists in their name, you just didn't talk about it. You just didn't mention it because the Soviet Union was our enemy. 
Well, now the Soviet Union is Russia, and Russia is a, an you know a oligarchy, the same as the United States. As a matter of fact, the United States went over there in the early 1990s and offshored a lot of their industries. So, I mean, our our interests are quite entangled there, and we have a lot of interest with regard to fossil fuels and and pipelines. You know, because pipelines go from one place to another. And uh, if you're going to take natural gas or fossil fuels out of the Soviet Union or Russia, sorry, out of Russia and get them to market in anywhere, they've got to go through someplace else. You know, and this is this is really what's at the base of our situation in Ukraine right now, for instance, is that, uh, you know, we're, we're really talking about fossil fuels without talking about fossil fuels. It's like we're in one big dysfunctional family where someone's having an, aff- an affair and you can't talk about it openly, but it's this thing, this like truth-shaped hole that's, that's a, a big mess at the, big, at the middle of the family. And everybody knows it's there, but you can't ever say exactly what it is. Well, I'm going to be the one to sit down at the dinner table and say, it's the fossil fuels, you know, it's the, there's, there, people are screwing each other and it has to do with this and it has to do with that. Now, back in the 60s, uh, you know, we were deathly afraid that the Soviet Union was going to, uh, start a nuclear war or that we were going to start a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. I mean, uh, this was real life stuff. And even for someone like myself who went to elementary school in the seventies and high school for part of the eighties, it growing up on the space coast, by the way, um, this was real life. You know, we were, Every rocket that is launched from uh, Brevard County, you know, that we used to go to the beach and go, oh, well, that looks cool. You know, oh, there's a Saturn rocket at night. That's amazing. Uh, those were built to carry weaponry. You know, it wasn't it, 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 it wasn't so much about communications and satellites back then. In other words, it was about um, this this war we were supposed to have. So these were intercontinental ballistic missiles. They were showing off that they could uh, get a payload from one side of the planet to the other side of the planet, essentially. Uh, These organizations like DSA and the Fourth International and so on and so forth, uh, they were all part of, of this conversation. And it's like it's an even longer conversation if you take into account what happened before World War II and the, the state of the American left going into World War II and then the compromises that had to be made uh, with regard to, uh, you know, fighting the fascists. And that's a whole other story. But we came out of that, let's just say, we came out of that already having shifted rightward. We already gave up quite a bit of ground in order to, you know, just join the, the, the master discourse and um, be on the same footing, mostly, as the rest of the country. So by the time the 60s roll around and we're fighting civil rights at the same time, we're worried about being incinerated in a nuclear inferno, um, 
there was a lot of reflection and reorganization and realignment within these organizations. And that's what's described in the London article in um, World Socialist website. And it's really good for that. But you're going to have to have a, uh, a map. You know, you're not going to understand what, what's written here unless you understand the history of, of these organizations in the 60s. And he cites Todd Gitlin's book called The 60s, which I have right here, um, The 60s, Years of Hope, Days of Rage. Um, Todd Gitlin wrote this, and it's, it's a pretty good uh, history of all of these different factions and, you know, the way that all of this kind of came about. In short order, this is discussed in the London article, uh, and uh, what happened essentially was the left kind of came out of this with uh, carrying the discourse, carrying the, na- the the narrative that the Soviet Union was essentially a, uh, represented a new ruling class whose human rights violations justified socialist support for American imperialism in the Cold War. And so we we said, hey, we'll we'll be on your side on foreign policy. We'll be on, you know, the left said we will be on, you know, the United States imperialist side in the Cold War. We'll we'll give you foreign policy, but you have to give us domestic policy. I'm, I'm dumbing that down a whole lot, but that's that's you know, that's the only way to say this really quickly. Um, the the organizations rejected the started to reject the revolutionary role of the working class. And you see that in the language that AOC used, you know, where she's um, uh, earlier referred to uh, class essentialism. You know, that's a rejection of, uh, of, you know, the class politics that is a revolutionary role or revolutionary class politics. These were also rejected in the 60s. Uh, so that these people ended up um, working very closely with the AFL-CIO, supporting the Bay of Pigs, supporting the uh, uh, Vietnam War. You know, there was there was a lot of trade-offs. So domestic policy and foreign policy uh, were traded back and forth like like uh, like poker chips, almost like little chips of power. That, you know, we'll give up one of these if you give us one of those, that kind of thing. Uh, Michael Harrington is a very important person in this whole uh, history. And Michael Harrington has talked about at length in Todd Gitlin's book, and he's mentioned here in this article. And uh, Harrington pressed the group to take a more explicitly anti-communist position against the Soviet Union and national liberation movements like the Viet Cong. Quote, anti-communism was Michael Harrington's emotional touchstone, says Todd Gitlin in his book, The 60s. He had formed his politics with the bitter and brilliant Max, Max Schachman. And, uh, and this is the part that I'm kind of trying to shield you from. You don't really need to know the big back and forth between Harrington and Schachman to know that that there was a rightward drift that came out of the 60s. 
this orientation primarily served the foreign policy interests of the United States in their imperialist project. Harrington would later demand that socialist organizations play a, quote, pro-American, pro-Cold War, pro-State Department kind of role. And that is that is who AOC is. I mean, it's almost like, I mean, pro-American, pro-Cold War, State Department kind of role. That's describing what's going on in that DSA interview pretty much to a T. Now, this new left functioned and was designed to function entirely within the Democratic Party. Uh, and they were working towards a realignment within the Democratic Party. That's where all of this horse trading comes from. You know, you get domestic policy, we'll give you foreign policy. Uh the left at the time argued that American foreign policy interests could be served by breaking with Southern segregationists from the Democratic Party and reorienting towards trade union bureaucracy and the upper middle class. And so you start to see the growth of this uh, creative class and innovation and, you know, what came about in the 90s neoliberalism of, of, of the Clintons. You also see a very early formation of identity politics, which is explained in a really good book by Paul Drucker. And there's a little quote here, and it says, Michael Harrington became the leader of the ex-Shockmanite socialists who refused to concede the dominant role in the Democratic coalition to the AFL-CIO. So they were in a, they were in a little uh, power tussle there with the, with the big labor unions. Michael Harrington looked instead for a compromise between labor leaders and representatives of new politics, a loose network of progressives, mostly Latino, feminist, youth, countercultural, and anti-war ferment of the 1960s. Pardon my paper. The realignment strategy would allow socialists to work together effectively inside the Democratic Party. Now, that's what you're hearing in, in that first interview, and you're hearing it loud and clear. You are hearing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez say it's very important that we work within the contours of the Democratic Party in this specific way. And there are gonna, there's going to be an in-group of good faith actors and an outgroup of bad faith actors. It's very important that those two are clearly defined because this whole analysis does not work unless you can carve out an outgroup and make them the, the, the ones who don't belong. Now, this realignment there are some themes that reemerge in this realignment. So, for instance, uh, they were around uh, in 72 for George McGovern, and there's a lot of, like, hurt feelings there about that because some people feel like he wasn't supported well enough by other factions. And then later on, the, the DSA's own website acknowledges the organization waged a Democracy 76 campaign to push Jimmy Carter to the left. Pushing Jimmy Carter to the left. Uh, so, uh, and then they worked in 1984 in the presidential uh, 
primary and worked closely with the Congressional Progressive Caucus. 84 would have been uh, Jesse Jackson. Uh, That's who you should have been towards in the primary in 84. Now, what does the DSA have to show for 50 years of working within the Democratic Party? The party has abandoned any pretense to social reforms. It's waged permanent war and overseen massive growth in social inequality. This realignment strategy paved the way for the Democratic Party's rapid movement even further to the right. It succeeded in facilitating the Democrats' adoption of identity politics based on doling out privileged positions to corrupt representatives of various racial groups and more open acceptance of human rights imperialism. Do not forget that phrase, human rights imperialism, because this is the moment that we are moving into. This is the moment that I uh, recognized as I was writing my last piece. This human rights imperialism is what is going to be animating us for uh, the next little while. AOC and the DSA are carrying forward their pro-imperialist, anti-communist traditions into the 21st century. Their main role, as expressed in the interview, is to serve as gatekeepers of the bourgeois political left, channeling social opposition into the Democratic Party and placing its left opponents beyond the pale. Who's the good faith actors? Who's the bad faith actors? Well, the bad faith actors, or the more socialist than now, as AOC said, it's the people who claim to be more left. Those are the people who are the outgroups. But what I'm telling you is that the definition of being beyond the pale, the definition of being more left or whatever, is to have a critique of human rights imperialism. In other words, we're still doing the old, you get domestic policy, those guys get foreign policy song and dance here. Those who fight to mobilize the working class are, that's class essentialism or class reductionism, uh, for a break with the Democratic Party are cynical, bad faith actors who want to destroy. And that's what AOC said. That's the movement for a people's party. These, these are the, there's, there's more to unroll with that whole story that I did, but some of the DMs I got from, you know, DM requests from people that I don't know who were trying to, you know, tug on my sleeve and say, that guy in the, in the movement for a people's party, I think he's CIA, you know, it's just ridiculous. It's just absolutely uh, uh, worthy of every kind of ridicule, just just stupid. The frenzied tone of these McCarthyite attacks betrays a high level of anxiety in leading democratic circles, as we know, over the growth of social opposition to conditions of massive inequality and the ruling class's response to the pandemic, which has killed over half a million people in the United States alone. Under these conditions, AOC and the DSA serve as the keystone in the architecture of the capitalist political system. I think that's really important. I mean, if these issues matter to you at all, if 
capitalism and socialism matter to you at all, if foreign policy and domestic policy matter to you at all, it behooves you to understand how all of these things kind of come together and how this history is so rich and what it's produced for us now in this moment. And London ends his piece by saying, this is a lesson of the reactionary role played by the political tradition that calls itself, quote, democratic socialism, which really has nothing to do with socialism at all. He's making a very pointed critique. This is a pointed analysis. This is a pointed critique. And what he is saying is that if you are uh, pointing to if you're going to define people as as beyond the pale, like we're the good leftists over here and you're the bad leftists over there, then then you're working in a project that uh, holds up capitalism. You're not working in a project that is, uh, you know, working towards the liberation of all, which is, to my understanding, you know, where these traditions are necessarily generally come from you could say that's the thing anyway these are these are very interesting ideas i'm very interested in in them in an academic sense i'm interested in them in a journalistic and an analysis analytic sense and i'm very happy to have brought them to you and uh we're going to shift gears right now and we're going to go to rick spizak talking to Dennis Campbell. We'll be right back with that in just a second. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the great good fortune to bring bring you tonight Mr. Dennis Campbell, uh, journalist, author, uh, world traveler, uh, uh, and obviously cat lover. <laughs> Dennis, how have you been? Cat, de- cat decides it's also time because I'm talking on the phone. So it's well, time. of course. Want to be where the action is. Yeah, I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty darn good. Uh, Tennessee is a lovely place, and... Uh, it's it's a, such an exciting time. My wife and I have had both our shots, so we may actually survive this uh, stupidity. But hey, how's things in the Great Britain? Well, I've only had I've only had one of my shots so far, and you know there, and it's the uh, the AstraZeneca, which is the one that everybody seems to be taking pot shots at, despite the fact millions of people have been vaccinated with it, and it seems to be doing just fine. Thank you very much. Well, good. Um, you know, they're just uh, there's this uh, corporate uh, big pharma fight going on with Pfizer between Pfizer and AstraZeneca because AstraZeneca is pretty much doing this all at cost, whereas uh, you know Pfizer wants to uh, exact as much profit as they can out of this uh, horrible situation affecting everybody. So well, I, I can only imagine what kind of deals that the Trump regime uh, struck. To, uh, they were to get to get all this expedited, they were vile. They were just absolutely disgusting, and they just, you know, they do the sorts of things that, uh, you know, when you look at them, you just think it's just, oh. Anyways, 
He's gone. I wake up every morning happy that Joe Biden is president <laughs> of the United States. Uh, I watch the presser, and uh, it was astonishing to see an American president who could actually complete sentences, I mean, speak in full sentences, and uh, uh, yeah, it was very refreshing, very refreshing on every level. Before we leave the the, uh, stinking Trump topic behind, I do want to ask you, because I've been been, uh, really curious, you know, the world watched this last gasp of the Trump regime when he ordered his minions to attack the Congress. Uh, do you think there's any chance these people are going to actually be prosecuted? I'm hoping they will be. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm. What I'm doing is I'm giving everybody the benefit of the doubt here, and that everybody's going to actually, um, you know, do what needs to happen. That the, the case is the case is being built at this point, and that uh, you know, folks are actually going to uh, be prosecuted in a way that's going to lead to sedition and. 20-plus-year prison sentences, including, you know, the main man itself. And I think part of the reason we're not seeing a lot of activity (coughs) is that it's such an enormous and complicated case to build. Merrick Garland doesn't have his full team in place. He's trying to root out all of the deadwood and all of the people that have not, uh, you know, helped to advance this case. And including people within the Justice Department, it's going to take him six months. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's turn to my favorite topic and yours, uh, uh, the, the good things that are happening in the UK. Obviously, there's, we're seeing you know, different variations on the, uh, the COVID virus. Uh, some are thought to be more serious. Uh, you've got a pretty healthy rollout of the vaccines, um, where where do you see the situation right now in the UK vis-a-vis COVID-19? Well, I think we're we're at a situation where most everything that you know has been done at this point is is all leading us in the right position. I mean, we've got, <coughs> and and I don't want to give um, any credit to uh, the Tory government because they've managed to basically screw up a two-car funeral. Um, you know, we've we we the Oxford AstraZeneca was created in Oxford, manufactured largely here, and there has been a very robust system put together uh, in each of the nations. Uh, Wales led the way at the start, as did Scotland, um, and England has caught up now, uh, but they've had these mass vaccination centres, mostly in. Uh, leisure centers, which are these community gym-like buildings, you know, where people can go. I mean, I used to referee basketball on the court of the one that I had my shot at, and I was explaining to the guy that, you know, where where you're giving the shot, that section there, is where the benches were and the scorer's table was, you know, and how, how many games I'd actually been there for that particular, um, you know, that particular, in that particular location. So it was it was kind of nice, and you know, they've, they've brought in the military, and my jab was given to me by a, a Navy man. They've got a very good notification system. It's not the Hunger Game system that you folks have in the States where <laughs> the biggest and the fastest and the one with the best Internet connection 
you know, gets all the appointments and, uh, you know, friends of friends of Republicans or friends of Trump or friends of DeSantis, uh, you know, or whomever, right. you know, get their own special setups in, in their neighborhoods. Uh, n- none of that crap happens here because of the NHS and the NHS system. And you heard me talk about this two years ago sure, sure. You know, when I was there is, you know, it's a very well put together system. You know, I mean, I got my letter. I showed up on the date at the time. The whole process took about three and a half minutes from walking in the door to getting the jab. It would have you know, taken less if I didn't have to stop and use the loo on the way out. You know, <laughs> it's just a, a model of efficiency. Excellent, excellent. And I think that's, that's what's key to this. And uh, the only thing I disagree with is the amount of time between vaccines, <clears throat> the government wanted to get a lot of first jabs in, and now they're playing catch up, and it takes 11 weeks. So, I won't be able to get my second jab until the first week in May. But you know what? It's the NHS. You're used to being in a queue. You're used to being in a line, and used to. And then, <clears throat> and they took care of the um, <clears throat> the 70. You know, those above 90, those above 80, those above 70. Then. They got to 65, and at that point, they said we're also going to include uh, people with, uh, you know, serious pre-existing conditions. In my case, uh, type 2 diabetes and uh, other factors. And so, and they've stuck pretty much to it. And now, because the European Union um, doesn't like the fact that we're actually vaccinating people at a much higher rate than they are, <laughs> they're going to try to attempt to disrupt the supply chain and not allow any vaccine to leave the EU for the UK or for the USA and uh, because they they feel that an emergency now exists and they're going to take care of their own and screw everybody else no matter what the agreements are. Well, you know, that's that's exactly where I wanted to go next and I apologize for asking you to to talk about your European neighbors who who, sadly you so recently left. is it is it really just parochialism? Because all what we're hearing over here is that there's restrictions on who can get it, uh, vaccines being kept from this one or that one. Obviously, the third world, you know, with people without money are getting you know short shrift last ones in line. Um, but I wanted to ask you to whatever more detail you can give us about restrictions on vaccines from Europe, because we, you know, the story over here is totally muddled about what's going on with Europe and the vaccines. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, the, the European Union, it's 20-something nations. Um, you know, they they don't like the fact, first of all, that the UK left. And so everything that they have done has been punitive in nature to punish the UK for leaving. You know, it's like your, your, your ex, uh, you know, when you leave her is now you know, wanting to make sure you don't succeed in any way. So they try to pass all kinds of rules. They go back into court. They do whatever they have to do. It's the same here. And, um, you know, I think that uh, when you look at vaccines, they're such a precious commodity. You know, that uh, until a few weeks ago, there were so few of them. We only had the Pfizer and the Moderna, uh, or and the AstraZeneca, excuse me. Uh, Moderna wasn't over here yet, but now it's coming. And uh, now the Johnson & Johnson one jab is coming. And you're seeing growth in uh, parts of, um, of, of the United States. And, and there's, there's probably four or five now. 
and by the time we get to May and June, there'll be more. So it's just a matter of time before everything catches up. The goal that the UK had was to make sure that all um, that they, they could have all the under 50s vaccinated by the end of July, I think it was, here in the UK. And they were making great progress towards that goal. But uh, this recent fly in the ointment from the EU saying that they're going to not honor their agreements because a lot of our vaccines come from Belgium and uh, they come across the channel. And uh, they said, no, we're not going to live up to that particular um, you know, agreement because we are going to declare an emergency. So we're not going to live up to and ship out the ones that were promised to the U.S. and other parts of the world because we're going to make sure that the EU gets their share and gets up. The simple fact of the matter is that the EU can't get out of its own damn way. I mean, even in, in even in member states, it can't get out of its own way. And, you know, it's one of the moments where I actually think, had we stayed in the EU, we'd be in even worse shape than we are right now because we'd be living under EU directives about the distribution of those vaccines. And that's weird for me to say that because I was very much against us leaving. But I think <clears throat> the fact that we did leave has meant that more people are going to live, um, but not if they keep doing stupid stuff. I mean, today was the first day that Wales lifted travel restrictions so that now, and I live in, a, in an oceanside community and the stream of traffic was ridiculous. And all these people mixing and mingling on the beach. Now, I stayed away from the beach. I stuck to the roadways today for my, my hiking and you know just stayed away from anywhere where there are lots of people. But you can just you just know that in two weeks there's going to be another mini surge of some kind, much like what you're seeing with your spring break. And uh, you know, the the behavior of people and the behavior of local government sometimes just makes you want to scream. You know, you look at all of those thousands of people down in Miami that have, you know, decided you know, and and all the airlines aren't helping either. The only place they're flying to are the popular tourist destinations because they're trying to dig out of a hole. Nobody's being forced to wear masks anymore in, in, in Florida, in Texas, and several of these states. And they're all, you know, someone said it's kind of like, you know, you use the parachute, you know, to get yourself from 10,000 feet down to 100 feet, and then you cut the cord and say, that's it, we're done. You're still going to crash into the ground. You know, it's just a matter of how fast you're going to actually hit yourself in the ground. And you know, the, just the behavior is is ridiculous. I mean, I'm going to have to travel for business, this new business that I'm in, but you can bet that it will be with my N95 mask on and another one on over that, that I'm still going to be taking care, you know, anytime I find myself in a public place. And I just find, you know, some of this, um, this, this anti-masker, anti-vaxxer bullshit, because there's no other way to describe it, to be sure. beyond the pale. <clears throat> you know, yes, the vaccine saves me, but more importantly, it saves you, brother. It saves everybody I come in contact with. And, and we can't seem to get that across to people that, you know, when I wear a mask, it's not to protect me. It's to protect you. It's just, yeah, and, and it's just that the level of stupidity that Trump allowed to foment, you know, because he loves it, because he can then control people. He can get things to go the direction he wants to is is just beyond the pale. Ah. I mean, when you when you have somebody like Deborah Burks <clears throat> today 
this is Saturday that we're taping this, come out and say that we could have saved more people. You know, the first 100,000, there was nothing we could do about it was the initial surge, and we didn't know what we were doing. But by the time we got past that, we had enough information. And we're now approaching 600,000 people that have died from this. And we could have halved that or even more. And you think, because of the arrogance of Trump, because of the arrogance of members of his administration, and because of the propaganda they spewed for so long, all of those people who died, it's just, including some very dear friends of mine, you know, and I think, you know, it's just crazy. I mean, all the people that lived in, in you know, those assisted living or, or nursing home situations or whatever, where this thing went through like wildfire and nobody paid attention to it. Think of how many lives could have been saved. And, and, and I just, I find it just ridiculously upsetting that these people pass because of sheer stupidity and it wasn't for a lack of trying on the part of the the people that were taking care of them it was just nobody practiced really good preventative stuff i mean we learned this past week that there was apparently a drug treatment that it took an hour to infuse into you but if you had it when you were first diagnosed with covid it increased your chances of survival to something like 90%. And the reason was it wasn't was because it took an entire hour to infuse this bottle of medicine into your veins to make sure it would work. And I just, I find stuff like that and stories like that just infuriating, just absolutely infuriating that people's lives could have been saved if they knew about it. And just the, I mean, I'm dealing with a guy right now in, in Los Angeles, uh, Alan um, <clears throat> Silverberg. And the man is, uh, he's a genius when it comes to um, digital protection. That's his main business. But he has devoted his life now to getting PPE into the hands of people in rural hospitals, affordable PPE. And the stories he tells, and he will tell next week on the same platform as I do in Dubai, about the supply chains they literally had to create from scratch, the way they had to deceive members of the Trump administration so they wouldn't be seized at the port of entry, the things they had to do to ensure that this vital equipment, masks and and, and shields and gloves and everything. Uh, these are all things that, that their manufacturers were producing and importing directly. And that they actually had to do that in the United States of America to stop their own president from stealing and then selling this shit to other countries. Was, was, it was, it was, you listen to these stories and you're like, wow. I mean, the, the, the venal nature of the Trump crime syndicate family is just something beyond anything anybody could possibly believe. And yet they pulled all of the levers and almost, almost, you know, crashed the entire nation into the ground. And for what? For money. For love of money. And I just, I just can't stand it. It just makes me so furious. On a more positive note, um, America has rejoined the Paris talks for improving the environment.
Uh, I know I, for one, have, have a lot of hope that very serious people are going to be involved in really reassessing where we are, looking at the, the obvious challenges to the environment. Uh, that's that's got to be a good thing. We, got, we now have boring competence. Okay? We now have a person at the helm who's been around. He knows what needs to be done, and he knows how to get it done. And not bombast, not bluster, not only I can do it. He's got smart people working with him, and he's literally rebuilding the entire federal government system that Trump dismantled. And I, for one, am very happy about it. And I, for one, am very happy that I don't have to look at headlines every morning. And my first waking thought every day is no longer, he tweeted what? <laughs> I don't have to worry about anyone within the Biden administration causing, you know, seven to 10 moments of complete chaos and anarchy every day. I know that, you know, and I know Joe, and I know that Joe is doing the right thing. And there's a reason why after 60 days, people are saying things like FDR, LBJ, and Biden in the same sentence, because he and his entire team knows they have to go big, and they have to do it over the next 18 months in such a way that it makes a huge impact on everybody's life, from infrastructure to guns to all of the issues that have been ignored for two decades. And if there's any one thing he learned from being, you know, with President Obama is that they were too timid in the Obama administration and they didn't go big enough. And he's going to drag Manchin along with him and he knows Joe. Joe knows Joe. <clears throat> and they're going to make quite a partnership there. They're going to get rid of the filibuster on certain issues that they know need to happen. And, you know, people on the left are just going to have to be a little bit patient, but they're going to get there. D.C. is going to become a state. All of the things that they're doing, they're going to increase the size of the courts, but they're going to do the study first. They're going to do their homework. They're going to do what needs to be done rather than just start shooting from the hip and making things happen because somebody on the left is upset. Well, no, it's not going to work that way. He's being pulled to the left, which is good. But he's going there on his own terms, and and that's leadership, <laughs> and that's you know that's what I like the most about the way these 60 days have unfolded. He's not scapegoating. He doesn't even like to mention the previous occupant. I think he mentioned him once in the news in the news conference and laughed. You know, you know when he said, you know, is he going to run against you? <laughs> you know, he, that way his reaction was, yeah, go ahead. You know, I beat you by eight, you know, beat you by 20 million this time. You know, the GOP is leaving him behind because he doesn't have his megaphone anymore. He's in freaking visible, and that's exactly the way he should be. Yes, he could pick up the phone and call Fox and, you know, get airtime there, but a very small number of people watch Fox. You know, nobody, even less people watch OANN or whatever it is, or Newsmax, and they're just going to be these squeaky wheels kind of off to the side going to do something about white supremacy. He's going to do something about voting rights because he's got the guts to do it. And what is he going to do? He doesn't have a career after this. Uh -huh. He's going to do everything he can to leave his imprint on the White House and the presidency and bring democracy back. And I couldn't be happier.
Well, Mr. Campbell, I got to thank you. Always such a pleasure to hear your erudition, your keen insight into all things uh, civilized, and uh, <laughs> I just I can't thank you enough. Wonderful to oh, see my you, my pleasure. friend. My pleasure. And I want to welcome Janine Moloff with the Justice Report this week on Jim Crow 2.0 with voter suppression in Georgia. Janine, what is going on down there? Because I know not everybody is is aware, and it's a big right. story. Right. Well, first of all, there's a few terms I'm going to use in this report, one specifically, which is SCOTUS, which is just an acronym that means Supreme Court of the United States. So this is really about how the GOP, how the Republican SCOTUS under Chief Justice John Roberts has paved the way and made it easy for Georgia's massive voter suppression law. And I just call that Jim Crow 2.0. And as it turns out again, the notorious RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, was right again. So I'm just going to go straight into it. Jim Crow is back in a 21st century format, which frankly strongly resembles its former incarnation. Now, while you can go credit overt bigots like Trump and Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, um, plenty, but face the fact, the true credit traces back to the chief enabler, Supreme Court Justice Chief, I'm sorry, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts. You see, it was the Robert Scotus that dealt a death blow to voting rights in 2013 with the infamous Shelby case that we'll be talking about. Apparently, Chief Justice John Roberts thought that with Obama's election and re-election that somehow racism had, and structural racism in particular, had just magically disappeared. And that the Jim Crow tools that have been used to suppress black voting rights and express that structural racism uh, basically wasn't, any, wasn't needed any longer. Roberts thought the country had changed and walked away from such racist and structural racism such crimes of structural racism. Now, we can't know what's in John Roberts' heart. He could be truly clueless. Or he could have been courting favors with the GOP, I don't know, for a family member. It's all conjecture. We don't know. What we do know is that Chief Justice John Roberts and other conservatives on the SCOTUS created a ruling that effectively eviscerated voting rights for minorities by, at the same time, elevating states' rights and offered a bogus view of the South, refusing to see the racism all around them. Essentially, the Shelby decision provided the weapon of mass destruction to legally enable all types of voter suppression bills. Now, the notorious RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, predicted the Shelby ruling would trigger multiple bills whose sole purpose was to negate voting rights for communities of color, and as usual, she was right. So my first document in Slate just this past week, how the notorious RBG predicted the raging return of Jim Crow, what I call Jim Crow 2.0. And this was written this week by Mark Joseph Stern. And the headline is Ruth Bader Ginsburg predicted Georgia's new voter suppression law with uncanny accuracy. So this week we know that Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed this, this voter suppression law. Okay. And it was a closed door ceremony attended by only fellow Republicans, every single one of the people there at this small ceremony was a white male. There were no people of color and no women. During this 
signing ceremony, Georgia State Rep. Park Cannon, who's a young black Democrat, was arrested and charged with two felonies. What was her crime? She wanted to attend the signing ceremony and witness it and wanted to know what was in the final draft. And she dared, as a young black woman, to knock on the governor's door during the signing ceremonies. That, that's what she did. Uh, to add insult to injury, the signing ceremony itself was accessorized between the white men with a painting above Governor Kemp of a slaveholding plantation. So Representative Park Cannon was a black Democrat. She tried to attend the ceremony. She was arrested, charged with two felonies because she objected to this voter uh, suppression law. And the new law is SB 202, and it, it, the accusations are correct. It is a direct response to the hard-earned and hard-won victories by Democrats in Georgia. It targets communities of color, especially the black community, that helped both Democrats uh, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff win in the U.S. Senate. To, you know, keep in mind, I guess their heads must have exploded, the idea that one U.S. senator was a black man, the other was a Jewish man. So let's go to the Shelby decision. How does this tie into what I call the legalizing of Jim Crow 2.0? And it, is, it directly ties in. The only reason that SB 202 could pass was because of the, the Supreme Court's decision in 2013 in a case called Shelby County v. Holder. And what the Shelby County decision did, it freed the state from direct oversight under the Voting Rights Act. Uh, basically, in Shelby, what happened is there, the centerpiece of the Voting Rights uh, Act is what's called a preclearance requirement. And the preclearance requirement in the Voting Rights Act was an enforcement measure. It prevented Jim Crow laws like this from being enacted. So under this provision, any state that had a history of racist voter suppression, which is basically the South and especially Georgia, they couldn't change or alter any election law without receiving approval from the U.S. Department of Justice or a federal court in D.C., and D.C. preclearance, which Congress, so basically they either had to get approval from the DOJ or federal court in D.C., okay? And this preclearance requirement, along with the rest of the VRA, was overwhelmingly reauthorized in 06, and that is according to the New York Times. And what preclearance did is it blocked numerous efforts to suppress the votes of racial minorities, or to diminish it in any way. And what Roberts did basically, okay, he notoriously declared, he, he basically, the racism is now so rare in his eyes that it didn't justify the most stringent inf um, infringement on state rights. In other words, the enforcement measure of the Voting Rights Act, which is preclearance. And John Roberts talked about, quote, the equal sovereignty of the states. I don't know what United States John Roberts lives in. It's not the one I know. But at the time, the notorious RBG issued a stinging dissent. She accurately predicted a wave of voter suppression laws. And SB 202 is probably the, the worst of the bunch. It is exactly the kind of Jim Crow style attack on democracy that 
RBG basically anticipated. So here's what happened, okay? Um, we go back to Shelby County, all right? The preclearance requirement doesn't allow these states to claim state rights. It doesn't allow them to change any voter election laws without preclearance, so without approval, as I said before, from the DOJ, Department of Justice, or a federal court in D.C., period. All right? But John Roberts thought, he basically thought that, well, you know, racism's gone. We have a black president in 2013. What's the problem? And Roberts decided that Congress had failed to, per, to prove the continued necessity of the preclearance requirement. And what he did is he cited some statistics, John Roberts did, uh, showing that black voter participation had, had really dramatically increased in the South. And to him, that was proof that, quote, things have changed dramatically, end quote. Now, that's the only thing he really showed, is that black voter participation surged in the South. That was the only documentation that John Roberts offered in this, this sweeping decision. Now, I thought Supreme Court judge, judges were actually good at analysis. Increased black voter participation does not specifically prove the diminished presence of Jim Crow-type laws. John Roberts' analysis assumes a direct correlation between increased voter turnout of blacks in those southern states and an actual ease with the voting process itself. No such alignment occurred. In fact, the documentation overwhelmingly supports the notion that Jim Crow-type voter suppression was already in play in Georgia and that the increased black, in black turnout and that the increased black voter turnout was really attributed to an incredible turnout effort and the strength of the black community itself. So Chief Justice Roberts offered not only a flimsy rationale, but one based on inaccurate and incomplete documentation. Roberts uses bogus argument to elevate states' rights over the Bill of Rights. That's simple. And he really, according to uh, the repository.law at University of Michigan Education, they basically said that Roberts, in his argument, really favored an abstract and artificial concept of states' rights. And he favored that over the Congress's constitutional authority to outlaw any sort of race-based voting discrimination. So, and that this was the same judicial approach that warranted the need for the Voting Rights Act in the first place. Okay, so Ginsburg called out uh, John Roberts as for basically an illogical conclusion. To quote RBG, quote, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet, end quote. It's a good one. So after the Shelby decision, state after state passed these restrictions on the right to vote. And there's a lot of people like Brian Kemp that will claim, first of all, that they are insulted by alleging that they are perpetrating any sort of racist activity at all. But that's disingenuous at best because what they did, it's a little more subtle, but they implemented, for instance, in SB 202, the different, basically what RBG referred to as 
second generation barriers to minority voting rights. All right, they're not as obvious, but the intent and the effect is to really handicap the rights of blacks to vote. It is just that simple. Um, and so it will be things like closing, uh, closing polling places, um, reducing the number of ballot boxes for mail-in votes, uh, insisting that, like for instance, if we have another pandemic coming into the voting, the polling place and risking your life if you're medically vulnerable to cast your ballot and, and so on and so forth. And RBG really explained it, you know, the, the difference between first generation versus second generation barriers. Uh, the first generation, according to RBG, uh, that were barriers to ballot access would be things like literacy tests or, you know, guess how many jelly beans are in this enormous jar, that kind of nonsense, and basically more direct poll taxes. But second generation barriers, a little different, okay? They're not as obvious, but they have the same effect. To quote RBG, second-generation barriers to minority voting rights have emerged as substitutes. The sad irony of today's decision, meaning Shelby in other words, lies in its utter failure to grasp why the Voting Rights Act has proven effective. The court appears to believe that the VRA's success in eliminating the specific devices extant in 1965 means that preclearance is no longer needed. With that belief and the argument derived from it, history repeats itself. In truth, the evolution of voting discrimination into more subtle second-generation barriers is powerful evidence that a remedy as effective as preclearance remains vital to protect minority voting rights and prevent backsliding. And it's true. And as a fellow Jew, she understood the difference between more obvious discrimination and more subtle discrimination. Um, she viewed voter suppression as a virus that was going to continue to mutate to basically overcome any effort to suppress it. And that if this is left untreated, the end goal of voter suppression would be to just destroy democracy itself. And the voter suppression measures that, that Georgia implemented in light of Shelby County in SB 202 includes the following. Poll closures in black communities. All right. There are several others, too. So, um, excuse me. The bill also limits the number of ballot drop boxes that any county can offer. It requires those ballot boxes to be located within early voting sites. Those ballot drop boxes can only be uh, accessed when the sites are open. The bill also prevents the use of drop boxes starting four days before an election. All right, the problem with that is that's when uh, absentee ballots, absentee voters need it most because if you mail in your ballot uh, as late as four days before an election, it, may, it might not arrive on time and therefore your vote wouldn't be counted. SB 202 also shortens the voting period for runoff races, it curtails early voting for runoffs, and it compels some counties, especially those with large black communities, to reduce their early voting hours. Now, while that doesn't look like a poll tax circa 1965, it is essentially just that, especially for lower income minority voters with unpredictable work schedules. 
you effectively have to decide then what's more important to you, voting and risking your job or keeping your job. And that's very real for low-income minority, um, minority workers, minimum wage workers. And these, all these provisions are going to ensure that there's longer lines at the polls. Um, keep in mind, people in Georgia, especially the black community, they already wait for hours to cast ballots. And it's hard for a lot of whites to understand that. In my home state of Missouri, if you live in an affluent white suburb, you just go in, it takes a few minutes, you come out. But in other parts, uh, especially of St. Louis, where there's uh, a minority community, depending on the election, the line might wind around the building, and again, it may take hours. So that is part of the whole voter suppression scheme. Now, the most petty aspect of SB202, keep in mind, it's ironically titled the Election Integrity Act, and this is just petty and mean. The law makes it a crime for volunteers to pass out food or water to voters waiting for hours in those lines. In other words, if you offer an elderly woman who is about to pass out because she's been there for hours a cup of water, you are risking a criminal offense. That, that just, if it, you can't get past the pettiness of this. Okay, this is to... You can't offer them food. If there's a diabetic in line and they're telling you, I need to get something to eat or I'm going to get sick, but they didn't realize it was going to take so long, they have to choose between whether or not they're going to flip out and, and have their blood sugar crash or whether they're going to vote. And if somebody gives them something to eat or drink, that person that's giving them sustenance is risking a criminal offense now. And this is what voting rights advocates um, have warned about, and they filed a suit against SB202 in recent days, including Stacey Abrams, who ran against uh, Brian Kemp. But these lawsuits won't go anywhere because it eventually goes to the SCOTUS. The majority of conservatives on the SCOTUS are going to refuse to see this. Keep in mind, the Supreme Court has historically, before the Voting Rights Act has historically, favored state rights, and that even when it was clear that states' rights were used as a shield to implement the most vicious racist policies known, okay? So, you know, Shelby County is what it traces back to. Now, Mother Jones, Ari Berman from Mother Jones also wrote an article, and, you know, basically criticizing John Roberts again. Okay, because he's saying things, Roberts is saying things have dramatically changed, but it hasn't, okay? Um, keep in mind, this is the Election Integrity Act of 2021, and again, um, there was another requirement in SB202, or the Election Integrity Act of 2021, that was barely mentioned in the mainstream corporate media, okay? While criminalizing giving somebody food or water in a voting line is the most petty. It's not the most dangerous aspect of SB202. The most dangerous aspect is that the new law allows the Georgia GOP-controlled legislature to appoint a majority of members to the state election board. Furthermore, it gives the board power to take over county election boards, making it easier for the GOP to challenge election results, 
Uh, the GOP could take over election administration in large Democratic counties. Uh, they could even, under 202, even legally decline or refuse to certify the results if Democrats win close races. Okay? And I think there's one other thing, too, where basically if the GOP-controlled legislature decided that they don't, or rather, I'm sorry, if the state board decides they don't like certain county boards, they can not just take over those county election votes, they can replace those people. So this is massive voter suppression, and it's this last part that is so incredibly dangerous. Okay? Um, there was one of the lawsuits was filed by Democratic lawyer Mark Elias um, for several civil rights groups, and Elias was quoted as saying, quote, despite nationwide scrutiny of Georgia's elections, which only confirmed the absence of any fraud, insecurity, or wrongdoing, Republican members of the General Assembly voted to pass sweeping omnibus legislation that is clearly intended to and will have the effect of making it harder for lawful Georgia voters to participate in the state's election. He went on to say, and it will impose these unjustifiable burdens disproportionately on the state's minority, young, poor, and disabled citizens. Okay? So... Then we see Brian, Governor Brian, Brian Kemp signing the bill, surrounded by all-white male Georgia legislators under a painting of a slave plantation, and that was noted by Philadelphia Inquirer columnist Will Bunch. So here comes State Rep. Park Cannon. So after Governor Kemp signed this infamous bill under a painting of a slave plantation, enter State Rep. Uh, Park Cannon to the rescue. Now, Park Cannon is a young black woman who has also uh, been influenced by the wonderful Reverend Barber and his Poor People's Campaign. And Representative Park Cannon wanted to witness the signing of SB 202. Uh, she wanted to witness it and, I guess, put some pressure on Governor Kemp. And she also wanted, she and a colleague also wanted to see what was actually in the final bill. They apparently didn't have access. And she very politely knocked on his door. After which the Georgia Capitol Police arrested her. They dragged her from the building like she was, you know, basically garbage. And they charged her with two felony counts. Okay, her crime. And again, it's a Trump, pardon the phrase, or trumped up crimes, but basically she was arrested for knocking on the governor's door because she interrupted him by her knocking. Now keep in mind, she wasn't banging, she wasn't screaming, it was a polite knock, that's it. And there's plenty of video to show how they drag her away. Her colleague is saying, what are you arresting her for? And these white cops are just looking through her colleague like she doesn't even exist. So don't tell me this isn't Jim Crow 2.0, because it is. Uh, so they brought two felony charges against her. Now keep in mind, Georgia has a long history of this. Georgia was the first southern state to pass a poll tax uh, to disenfranchise uh, black voters during Reconstruction. That's how far back this goes. And now it's one of the first states to pass sweeping voter suppression. All right. And what all this is really saying is that the Roberts GOP Supreme Court majority has to be hold, held accountable. All right. Now, a few of them are gone. Scalia is gone. But John Roberts needs to be held accountable. 
Uh, and, you know, once again, this was the case of Shelby County v. Holder. And here's a direct quote for why John Roberts did what he did. Quote, our country has changed. This was in his majority opinion. And while any racial discrimination in voting is too much, Congress must ensure that the legislation that passes to remedy that problem speaks to current conditions, end quote. And that's when they gutted that key provision that enforced the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Okay. Keep in mind, just this past 2018, when there was a group, when there was a massive gubernatorial election, Stacey Abrams, the Democrat, was running against now Governor Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp at the time was Georgia's Secretary of State. He had a clear conflict of interest. The Secretary of State controls basically voting procedures. And yet, you know, he got away with it. And during that election, and it's probably why Stacey Abrams lost, the state under then Georgia Secretary of State Brian Kemp, now governor, purged more than 500,000 voters from the rolls uh, in 2017. Okay. Uh, the Associated Press reported that his office also froze 53,000 voter applications under what they call their exact match policy. And the exact match policy, you talk about nitpicking. Basically, the exact match policy allows officials at any polling place to reject voter registration forms if the applicant's information doesn't match exactly. And it doesn't matter if it's only off by a comma or a hyphen. I'm not kidding. So... Again, the Republicans like Brian Kemp, according to Ari Berman, defend these measures as basically a prophylactic against voter fraud, which has been proven to be non-existent in Georgia, basically. Um, frankly, I think Brian Kemp's a prophylactic, but that's another story. Okay, you've got to inject a little humor into this because it's so vile. Keep in mind, the Voting Rights Act isn't a regular piece of legislation. People died for it. All right? Civil rights activists, including the late John Lewis, God bless him, were beaten, bloodied, murdered. All right? Just so that black Americans, the people of color, would have the same access to vote as whites. That's it. Now, the VRA, the Voting Rights Act, and it sounds like I'm beating a dead horse, it had two key provisions, and the major one was Section 5, the pre-clearance requirement, okay? So you had Section 2 and Section 5. Those are the two key provisions. This is what gives the Voting Rights Act some teeth so they can enforce these lovely ideas. Section 2 basically established a permanent, and I'm just reading direct quote, established a permanent and nationwide ban on racial discrimination in election laws. Okay, fine. So how do you enforce that ban? That's where Section 5, the preclearance requirement, comes in. That provision basically sets this process called preclearance. So that states or counties with a history of racial discrimination in voting practices had to, re had to file and receive approval from either the Department of Justice at the federal level or a federal court in D.C. before they made even the slightest change to their election laws. All right? So this was to make sure that they didn't pull any skullduggery. And this part of the VRA expanded in time to cover 
Alaska, and Arizona to protect Native American voting rights, as well as some counties through the Northeast and the West. And that is according to NewYorkTimes.com. So preclearance amounted to basically a federal intervention, and the state's writers are saying, you know, you don't have the right to do that. Um, this is basically, you know, they're pitting states' rights against our constitutional rights. Okay. So, but Shelby didn't emerge right away. There was a legal challenge to preclearance in 09 from Texas in a case called Northwest Austin Municipality Utility District Number 1. Wow, that's long. V holder. But this was the first crack in breaking preclearance and breaking the Voting Rights uh, Act. And so in 09, um, basically this board, if you will, this utility district, wanted to apply through the Voting Rights Act to, quote, opt out of preclearance. Now, I didn't know that some of us could opt out of legal requirements, all right? Apparently, rule of law and punishment for rule of law only applies in the South, it seems, to people of color, uppity women, religious men. If you're a white man, of course, you should opt out. And, of course, I'm being sarcastic. But the idea that they would opt out of a legal requirement, there was absolutely no true data establishing the need to get rid of this requirement is outrageous. But the, but the uh, Chief Justice Roberts began to attack equality under the law and embrace white privilege using the mantle of states' rights when he raised questions about the constitutionality of preclearance. Okay? So to quote John Roberts, quote, more than 40 years ago, this court concluded that exceptional conditions prevailing in certain parts of the country justified, it, it justified extraordinary legislation otherwise unfamiliar to our federal system. In part due to the success of that legislation, we are now a very different nation. Whether conditions continue to justify such legis legislation is a difficult constitutional question we do not answer today, end quote, which is pure nonsense. All right, only a truly privileged white man who is either clueless or someone who's a rabid bigot could come to that conclusion. Okay, but he did. And that was in 09. So, um, Basically, the Obama administration saw the warning signs in the Roberts Court in the Northwest Austin case, and so they kind of let that legal fight go, all right? They had a legal fight against that exact match policy, um, but this, they settled instead so that there would be a modified version of the exact match policy um, after Kemp entered office as Secretary of State. The settlement... The, the justification by the Obama DOJ under Holder was that it was theorized to be a way of, to avoid allowing the SCOTUS to totally strike down the Voting Rights Act by striking down VRA's enforcement measures, okay? So they thought if they settled, it would avoid that fight, okay? But it didn't. Because that was in 09, and in 13, the Shelby case, Shelby County. Uh, Shelby flipped the switch. It just does, and pretty much eviscerates any enforcement through the Voting Rights Act. Um, John Roberts asked the question, is, quote, is it the government's submission that the citizens in the South are more racist than citizens in the North, end quote. Now, I would say that that actually isn't 
the trick question. If anything, preclearance should have been expanded to the entire United States. And it should have been done so legislatively as basically an, ins an insurance policy to make sure everybody received access and was able to vote. But then we have the late Antonin Scalia, who really said something goofy, according to Berman. Um, he made the suggestion that Congress only reauthorized the Voting Rights Act in 06, which they did, because, quote, lawmakers would not be reelected if they voted against it. Okay, as if that were not how representative democracy should work, end quote. Okay, um, to quote Scalia, whenever a society adopts racial entitlements, it is very difficult to get out of them through the normal political processes, end quote. Okay, once again, the late Antonin Scalia proves utterly unable or unwilling to see the truth. The Voting Rights Act didn't grant any alleged racial entitlement. Rather, prevented states with a history of voter suppression based on structural racism from enacting voting schemes, which would essentially present as that same illegal voter suppression, often in the more subtle form of a de facto poll tax by making voting totally inconvenient to the point that lower wage workers can either wait for hours in line to vote or keep their jobs, one or the other. Civil rights groups warned the Roberts Court was going to have dire implications, all right? Um, basically, there was the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, uh, as reported by the AmericanBar.org, is quoted as saying this, quote, this court's decisions in the 1870s to invalidate federal voting rights legislation paved the way for southern states to enact laws that effectively barred African Americans from exercising their right to vote for many generations. If this court were to invalidate Section 5, there is a very real and substantial risk that this history would repeat itself. The court should not allow this to happen, end quote. John Lewis came against it as well. Um, so, again, the American Bar went on to say, um, quote, in response to more minority voters participating in the political process, six of the nine states fully covered under Section 5, have passed legislation in the last two years designed to restrict voting rights and access to the polls. These laws harken back to the days of Jim Crow and remind us all that we have not left the past behind, end quote. So to make matters worse, Chief Justice Roberts did something really sneaky. They actually didn't get rid of Section 5 altogether. In fact, Roberts, with the other four conservative judges, left Section 5 intact. You think, well, then where's the problem? What they did is they struck down something called Section 4B as unconstitutional. And that provision basically had a list of which jurisdictions would fall under Section 5. Okay? And, again, RBG noted in her dissent, the House and Senate held 21 hearings on the matter of the Voting Rights Act reauthorization in 2006. The House and Senate completed a 15,000-page report as part and parcel of their deliberations for the, two, the reauthorization. But then she accused uh, Roberts and his GOP colleagues that they, quote, swapped out the legislative fact-finding process 
with their own policy assessment and found the law wanting, end quote. So basically, RBG is saying, look, the U.S. Congress reauthorized the Voting Rights Act, including the preclearance requirement in 2006. They based their reauthorization on a series of 21 very long hearings on the matter, and they collected data to create a 15,000-page record. That's the data they based their decision on. And what she's saying is that basically Roberts and his GOP colleagues set aside all that data, all that documentation, and basically said, we don't care. We don't care if you have documentation that proves racial injustice and voting rights. Because we're going we're gonna to basically supersede that. We're going to put ahead our own opinion. We are the, not Supreme Court justices. We're Supreme priests. And we keep that magic word. And we say, no, Georgia and these other southern states are not guilty. So all your documentation be damned. She accused them of being biased and failing in their judicial duty, and she was right. She may have done it in a nicer way than I'm saying, but that's what she was saying. And Roberts, his response to the rebuttal was this. According to John Roberts, quote, Congress did not use the record it compiled to shape a coverage formula grounded in current conditions. It instead reenacted a formula based on 40-year-old facts having no logical relation to the present day, end quote. Okay. Apparently, John Roberts either did not glance at the 15,000-page report that clearly documented these 40-year-old facts, these 40-year-old crimes are still occurring, or he didn't care. And this judicial sleight of hand meant that the court could avoid striking down preclearance. Okay, they didn't strike it down, but what they did, they declared the, that part of preclearance under Section 4B the part that deals with jurisdictions, in other words, which areas are, are um, going to be listed under Section 5, called it unconstitutional. So it's clear John Roberts issued kind of a challenge, okay? He basically said, well, you can't just, you can't just single out the South as you did in the 1965 and 2006 reauthorization. If you're going to say that states need preclearance to prevent voter suppression, then it has to apply either to all or none. And what that really meant is that, okay, you could pass a new coverage formula, but according to that writer, quote, preclearance is now a sword that can't be unsheathed. All right? Because the GOP majority is never going to go along with that. And when you couple that with the increased use of the filibuster by the GOP, we have a Voting Rights Act that is DOA, dead on arrival. That's what's happened. So, once again, Brooke, can I stop here for a second? Sure. All right. So, all this means is that the Supreme Court jerry-rigged the law. They basically said that when Congress reauthorized the Voting Rights Act in 2006, when Congress held 21 hearings and it compiled a 15,000-page report that documented incidences of voter suppression against minorities based in structural racism, that that didn't count. That John Roberts could unilaterally, along with his GOP colleagues on the court, just set aside the law and the actual documentation be damned. So much for justice being blind. 
So in comes State Rep Park Cannon. She gets arrested, all right? Again, she knocks on the door, and apparently knocking on the door in Georgia now under under this Voting Integrity Act constitutes a felony, all right? And the second felony basically was that she obstructed a police officer and disrupted a session of the General Assembly, except that Kemp wasn't having a session of the General Assembly when this happened. He was in a small uh, room with a handful of white men as he signed the bill. So there was no session of the General Assembly going on. That's one. And knocking on the door, good Lord. Her arrest is just so reminiscent of what happened in Hitler's rise. I I can't even believe it. So uh, Richard Rose, who's president of the Atlanta NAACP, uh, issued a statement about Park Cannon's arrest for just, you know, doing her job, wanting to know what's going on. He quoted saying, quote, the only thing that's missing out of this voting bill is a poll tax and the question of how many bubbles in a bar of soap or how many jelly beans in a jar. Okay. Uh, and then Cannon's attorney, end quote, Cannon's attorney, uh, named, a man named Gerald Griggs, who's also an anti-racist activist, was quoted as saying, I've been here before and done this before. Um, the charges have no merit. I fully expect the Park Cannon's name will be cleared, end quote. So this is voter suppression. It is racism. There's no guesswork here. And we're going to be talking about this more and more. You know, just recently, my one of my senators, Roy Blunt, complained against attacks on the filibuster, claiming it had absolutely no role in racist racism at all. Well, you know. So, in conclusion, as despicable as this new voter suppression law in Georgia is, the mainstream GOP of George W. Bush, Roy Blunt, and Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts, they cannot merely wash their hands of the filth that is racism and the subsequent racist policies that effectively deny communities of color the right to vote and have their votes counted. The roots of this new Jim Crow 2.0 trace back, directly back, to the Robert Scotus and the Shelby decision of 2013. This was predicted by the notorious RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and as usual, she was right. Either the GOP wing of the Roberts Supreme Court have been incredibly naive, or they were searching for a way to legalize the massive voter suppression historically conducted against communities of color and progressives. Pairing this pattern with the defiant GOP defense of the filibuster as evidenced by Roy Blunt's pathetic and hopefully inaccurate argument, and we have the perfect storm for rising white supremacy and Nazism. Roy Blunt stupidly claimed this past week that the filibuster had no connection to the maintenance of white supremacy and Jim Crow. Oh, Lord, that wasn't just a big lie, but an incredibly stupid lie. In fact, Roy Blunt, we mentioned that Brian Kemp was a dirty prophylactic, and so is Roy Blunt, talking Josh Hawley, too. Between, basically, in the years that the filibuster's been used, the majority of the time, prior to, basically, the 1990s, the filibuster was used primarily to block civil rights legislation and uphold Jim Crow. How Roy Blunt can use such a ludicrous argument, which has no documented data, is only another testimony to the uh, habitual moral degradation of the GOP. 
While the Roberts GOP SCOTUS, along with conservatives in general, love to push the antiquated states' rights argument, someone should remind Chief Justice John Roberts of one simple fact. States' rights should never be allowed to exist if they trample the constitutional rights of any of us. The civil right to vote should never be denied through such trickery and deceit as in the Georgia case where voting has become an extreme sport only endured easily by the powerful and the white. Chief Justice John Roberts has essentially proven to be that alleged moderate that Dr. King blamed for enabling structural racism. And here's King's quote. Quote, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been greatly disappointed with a white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another person's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright objection. And that's from Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham jail. And I just have one last thing to say. Keep in mind, Chief Justice John Roberts prides himself on his moderation. He prides himself on being a moderate as he has granted license to the white supremacist and the near cousin of white supremacy, the neo-Nazi. And that's my report. All right, folks, thanks for sticking with us. And that's all for me. We will talk to you guys next week uh, when we do this all over again. 